Welcome to the Patrama Party. We're partying. We're traumatized. It's cool. We're cool. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this is a podcast where we go deep on the tough stuff, maybe get a little crunk in the process. So feel free to get your mark on if you're feeling it. Have a little drunk cry. It's totally fine. Today, we're talking about healing parental rejection. And I'll start by saying, fuck, 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 fuck. This one just, I mean... There, there's no trauma that's just like no big deal just some trauma you know all trauma sucks but man being rejected by your parents is particularly painful because it stays with us for so long especially if we're not working on ourselves and it will totally come out sideways in our lives the pain of it will show up for us professionally in romantic relationships in our relationships with our pets Sometimes I'll feel so rejected by my cat and then I'll just be like, is this actually about my dad? But yeah, it'll show up full spectrum across our lives. And if we don't want that, if we don't want our, you know, maybe emotionally immature or emotionally unprepared parents' behaviors to dictate how the rest of our lives turn out, we have to really be on top of it, be aware of it, be working with it. So to help us with that, I'm so excited to welcome psychotherapist Liz Marks to the show. Hi, Liz. Thanks for coming. Hi. On. Of course. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. It's 100% my pleasure to have you here. And tell me to get you kind of um, to introduce you to the crew. What are your sun, moon and rising signs? So I love this. Uh, my signs are, um, I am a Gemini sign born on May 31st. Okay. And so I have Capricorn moon and cancer rising Gemini sun. So it's a, it's an interesting mixture. Yes, actually. Okay. This is honestly a bit of a dream for me. I have a Gemini rising, so I love Geminis. I love how fun and upbeat and gregarious y'all are, but also little known fact Gemini's symbol, the symbol of the two pillars actually represents the gate of knowledge because Gemini's love to learn, which I super relate to. And I also love the way that cap and cancer balance that energy cap is really grounded and organized and Gemini, like maybe not, maybe not so much. <laughs> and, and cancer is super nurturing and loyal, which also Gemini, you know, like that really supports Gemini. Cause that's not necessarily their number one concern. So it's such a great balance. Do you feel like your birth chart makes sense with your personality? Definitely. I love that you said that. I've always thought that that symbol was more of like the two personalities, right? Mm -hmm, that right. everyone talks about with Gemini's. Right. I definitely think so. I think therapy and astrology are an interesting thing to talk about together. I am sometimes reluctant when clients bring it into therapy and I often want to explore why it's being brought in. I think a lot of the time we do that to validate something about ourselves. Mm -hmm. Oh, maybe this is the way I'm feeling or you know, my nurturing sense or why I'm going above and beyond is from this or some of those negatives, right? So we're looking for that self-blame and we're saying my reaction to that was such a Gemini or such a whatever. So I think it's an interesting thing to explore. I, I, I love astrology personally, and I think it's an, it's an interesting thing when it's brought into sessions too. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. Um, I know some like coaches will use astrology, but I think also, you know, there's a lot of 
commercialized astrology is really difficult, mm-hmm. right? Because like mm-hmm. it's so it's so oversimplified. And but yeah, I think it can be super helpful in um analysis, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of like anal- analyzing what makes someone tick. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I always think it's important when someone brings it up, like why are you bringing that into that this space, right? What does that resonate with? Like, how does that feel like that explains something for you that maybe you can't put into words otherwise? Interesting. Yeah, I had never thought of it that way. Like what, um, what, what is it providing you? A hundred percent. Yes. Like why is it in this space? Is it helping you explain or helping me understand you better? Ah, that's so interesting. I love that. Okay, cool. Um, okay. Well, I'm going to jump in with my experience on this topic. Liz, feel free to interject at any point. Should you feel inspired to do so? Or you can just, you know, knit, have a beer, whatever (laughs) feels good, you know, and then I'll direct some questions to you at the end. How does that sound? Awesome. Sounds great. Okay. Perfect. Okay. So of course, I think one of the important things to bring into this conversation is attachment style because feeling rejected by your parents or not as a child determines your attachment style. If you didn't feel rejected in any way by your parents or caregivers, you likely have secure attachment style. Secure attachment is awesome. You generally feel safe. You feel like relationships are safe. You can get hurt, but move on without being deeply wounded. 10 out of 10 would recommend secure attachment. Not that I have it. (laughs) I have anxious attachment style, which I've talked about before. It's interesting to know that in scientific analysis, women scored significantly higher in anxious attachment, men scored significantly higher on attachment related avoidance. So avoidance attachment. And we don't know about trans or non-binary folks because they haven't done that research yet. But in terms of the binaries, we do have some insight. To review from past episodes, all the attachment styles are determined when we're children. So by the time we're adolescents and we start to date and establish friends, et cetera, our attachment styles are already in place. That said, they are malleable. So if you're like, cool, fuck my life. I have anxious attachment style. I'm doomed forever. You're not doomed. You can heal your attachment style. With anxious attachment, at least one caregiver, if not more than one, was inconsistent with you as a child. Sometimes they were able to meet your needs. Sometimes they raged at you. Sometimes they ignored you, et cetera. You never knew what you were going to get from your caregivers. And so you learned that love is unpredictable, sometimes really scary, other times deeply satisfying, et cetera. And so you feel unsafe, unsure, insecure, and often later down the line become codependent in relationships. With fearful attachment, those folks had at least one caregiver who was consistently frightening and abusive. That could be overt abuse, like physical or sexual abuse, or more subtle abuse, like neglect, criticism, et cetera. But it was consistent, whatever it was, that's the key. In this case, these children grow up to want connection, but they believe that they're unlovable and they don't trust other people to love and accept them. So they withdraw and avoid emotional connection because they think they'll just be rejected eventually anyway. With avoidant attachment, these are folks whose caretakers didn't provide the essentials to them growing up, like food or shelter, or who just weren't responsive to them. As adults, people with avoidant attachment don't like physical touch or physical closeness, don't show their emotions easily, can't handle criticism, and often think people who express emotions are clingy or emotionally demanding. I just want to put that out there because in this conversation about healing parental rejection, 
It's important to remember that your parents or caregivers create the framework through which we as children and then later as adults understand the world. And if they are rejecting us in some way, that will stay with us unless we're intentional about healing it. For me, like I said, I have anxious attachment. So my mom was super unpredictable. Sometimes she was super loving and present and nurturing. And sometimes she was out of control with, with rage. And sometimes she just wasn't interested. My dad was pretty consistently scary. He ranged from scary to not present, mostly because uh, he was high a lot. He struggles with addiction. But he very, very, very rarely was nurturing, although he did have some moments. So in all, both my parents were unpredictable and I felt rejected by them in different ways. So I'll talk about that. And I also want to say, I think maybe I mentioned this, but I do want to preface by saying that both my parents struggle with mental health issues. And so this is, I always want to say, it's not about villainizing parents. It's about being honest about what we experienced. So one of my... Um, clearest childhood memories. I think I was four when this happened was of my mom having a rage meltdown. I can't at all remember what sparked it, but I remember my sister and I were sitting on the couch in the living room, being very quiet, not making a sound. And my mom was in the hallway right next to us screaming over and over. I wish I'd never had kids. And while she was doing this, she was beating her head into the wall and kicking it. So while this wasn't my mom's consistent take with motherhood, there were variations of this growing up. My mom was in the film industry and she would say things to us when we were older, like I could have been really successful in my career if it hadn't been for you girls. She would also often say as a threat, if we did something she didn't like, I'm going to send you to live with your father. So there was a kind of like base level rejection from my mom that sounded something like my life would be so much better without you. I want to send you away and get rid of you. But that messaging was intermixed with, I love you more than anything else. You're the best thing that's happened to me. So it was, it was very confusing. There were also other forms of rejection with my mom that were kind of like, I don't know, maybe more um, overt. Like one time in the fourth grade, I brought home a B in math and A's and everything else. And the only feedback I got was what happened with math? Why is it a B? And then there were moments of emotional rejection. So part of my mom's mental health struggle is she needed us to be very attuned to her emotional needs, but was not attuned to ours at all. So I actually have this memory that I, it's so interesting to me looking back on this, that it is so clear in my mind because I just knew something wasn't right, but I didn't know what until very recently as I've kind of figured out some of my own mental health stuff. So when I was probably 10 or 11, we lived in an apartment building that had a pool and a jacuzzi. And one day, a bunch of people from the apartment were outside swimming. My mom was in the jacuzzi with this young couple who had a toddler, or maybe she was just like a year and a half or something. And I was sitting there too. And my mom, my mom, as she was talking to this new, newer mom, the newer mom was asking for advice about what to do when the baby had a meltdown or a tantrum. And my mom said, I remember it so distinctly. She said, oh, you don't have to put up with that. Just put her in her room and close the door. <laughs> so I was probably 10 um, when I, I witnessed this conversation. And I didn't know why it was so... Um, 
off. I didn't know why that some that didn't why it stuck with me. But what I realized later is that for my mom, her focus when I was having an emotional upset as a child was not on me. It was not on what I needed or what I was going through. It was on herself. Specifically, it was on this sense that she was being wronged when her children were upset and she deserved better than that. And so the right thing, the just thing was to put that child in a room and close the door. There were other moments growing up when I was older, where I would try to tell my mom, like, Hey, when you did that, it really hurt my feelings or it upset me or whatever. And my mom's response was nine times out of 10, you're attacking me and I don't deserve this. And that was also a kind of rejection because I never felt seen or accepted in my anger. So with all these experiences, what I learned was I won't get love unless I'm happy all the time. I'll be rejected if I show sadness or anger or loneliness. And of course, depression was totally off the table. The way I experienced rejection with my dad was different because my dad made very little emotional or financial effort toward me at all. Whereas my mom was financially consistent, but emotionally back and forth. My dad lived a few States over and I would visit him every summer. One year I brought a video of my dance recital that I thought was, I was, I was like, this is sort of a moment where I get to show off to my dad and let him know that I'm talented because I thought if my dad, who is a very talented musician thought that I was talented, then maybe he would take an interest in me. So one day we were out, my dad, his girlfriend and I, and when we got home, his girlfriend said, Oh, do you want to watch Remy's dance video? And he was like, Nope. (laughs) And just turned on the TV. So there were a lot of experiences like that. But even during the times when I thought my dad was changing and was going to make an effort that almost always reject resulted in rejection in the end. So an example of that is like one summer when I came to visit, I was 11 And I'd been on a softball team, you know, just like a little parks and rec team back at home. And out of nowhere, one day my dad came home and was like, let's play catch. And I was fucking elated. He'd never done anything like that before with me. So we went to a park and played catch. And when we got home, his girlfriend was like, how was it? And I was like beaming. And he goes, "Eh," she throws like a girl. My dad was also extremely impatient. So if he was telling me to do something and I, for example, couldn't find the thing he was talking about or didn't know how to do it or was doing it too slowly for him, whatever it was, he would go from zero to raging really fast. So I was always afraid to make a mistake. So on the one end, I had my mom who would vacillate dramatically between showing love and then rejecting me in various ways. And with my dad, because it didn't, really ever include any kind of warmth or acceptance with him. It felt like rejection without respite. It was just ongoing for me. The way that I responded to this was becoming super repressed, especially when it came to anger and depression. I never felt justified in my anger. And when anger came up with friends or at work or whatever, I would tell myself that I was probably wrong for having it. In other words, I would repeat the cycle that I learned with my mom Anytime I felt anger toward her, she would deflect it, reject it, and make me the problem. So when anger came up for me outside of my mom, I would just repeat that pattern by rejecting it internally before someone else could do it first, which meant I often wouldn't tell people how I was feeling because I assumed they'd just tell me I was at fault anyway. 
And if someone was mad at me, I would spiral into out of body fear and panic and anxiety to the point where I'd want to flee my own body. It took me many years to realize that just because someone was mad at me didn't mean necessarily that I'd done anything wrong. And I could tell them that, (laughs) or that I could say, yeah, you know what? I did make a mistake and that was okay too. Depression was another one. I would go through periods of intense depression with suicidal ideation and just wouldn't tell anyone because my experience had been that when I was feeling difficult emotions, I was shunned essentially. So I assumed that people only loved me when I was happy and I kept those dark emotions under wraps as best I could. The other result that I noticed over the years was perfectionism. I think some people go the opposite direction where they're like, fuck everything. And they kind of take this anarchist vibe. But I went full throttle into feeling like I needed to have everything on point all the time and be the ultimate people pleaser. So for example, when I was in grad school, I was at the height of my depression, having suicidal ideation every day, but I was making straight A's. I was teaching in the English department. I was paying all my bills on time. Nothing was falling through the cracks except for me. (laughs) I was not doing well at all, but I had learned that I wasn't important. And so that's how I treated myself. And I think that's the big thing. No matter what kind of rejection you experience from parents, the underlying message is essentially the same. Who you are, who you really authentically, genuinely are, doesn't matter. You're not important. What's important is fill in the blank. Me, your mom, or me, your dad, or getting high, getting drunk. Kids who grow up around addiction will certainly understand that or you making good grades, or me having power over you, or looking good to our religious community, or keeping up appearances in our wealthy family, whatever it is. And while maybe sometimes parents or caretakers are saying that outright, like saying that you don't matter, like my dad, my dad one time told me that I was a mistake. (laughs) So maybe they're saying something like that, but often they're not using that language. They're just showing it in the way that they treat their children. And as a result, for those of us who experience that as kids, we learn to reject ourselves in various ways. And that is where the healing lies because we can't change what happened to us, but we can make different choices now. A lot of the work around this for me has been centered in learning to treat myself differently and to get on my own team, which doesn't mean I'm always right. It means that even when I'm wrong, I don't abandon myself. Even when others don't support or celebrate me, even when they full on reject me, I don't abandon myself. Even when I'm struggling with how my body looks in some way, I don't reject or abandon myself, right? Bottom line, I'm learning a new way to be in relationship with myself where I have my own back at all times. I'll pause there and say, I fucking hate when people are like, just learn to love yourself and it'll fix your issue. And then they just leave it at that. It's, I can't with that. Yeah. Or like, <laughs> fake it till you make it. It'll, right. it'll catch up. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> but I think what you're saying too, is the fact that, you know, you are the only person you're going to wake up with every single day and go to bed with every single day, whether you get married or you have a child or anything at the end of the day, when you go on under your covers, someone else might not be there in that moment. And that relationship with yourself, the worthiness that we seek from parents or other people or the perfectionist or the grades or the things that we're showing to prove that worthiness, that's not there. 
So that love that you're talking about, that abandonment that we have control of not allowing ourselves to give to ourselves is so important. Yes. Oh my, the worthiness. I love that you brought that word in. That's exactly it. Yeah. Yes. And when you, when you were abused in any way growing up, then you know that like, you don't have a blueprint for what worthiness and loving yourself looks like. So when someone's just like, just, you know, self-love girl, it's like someone being like, just build a car from scratch and then you'll be able to get around, you know, like what? No, fuck off. And there's so so much like social media, toxic positivity of like this kind of bootstraps mentality coming back of if you journal every day, or if you do one thing, all of a sudden, like the sun's going to come up differently. And it's like, we have to dig further. We have to, you know, start, we have to start maybe over from the emotional space to figure out kind of how to grow. Totally. Exactly. Yes. And to your point around toxic positivity, you know, I live in Sedona, Arizona. (laughs) It's a very woo woo culture. And there's a ton of that. Like, um, if you're not just like chanting, you know, I am joyous all day long, then, then like you are this shadow, you know, you're in the shadow and it's like, no, we get to work on our pain and we get to experience our pain and we get to be, we get to, um, we're not shunning that anymore. And I think that for me was like such a big thing. And I, I also will say that I was in, um, Al-Anon for a really long time and Al-Anon, one of the things that they often suggest is if you're going through something, then you make a gratitude list. And I don't, I'm not here to say that there's anything wrong with gratitude or gratitude lists, but what I noticed, you know, this was, I don't know, for me, like 15 years ago, I would notice that a lot of anger would come up for me when people would say that. And what I realized later was that was because in my family, if I would express anger, my mom would often say, you're so ungrateful. And it felt like a similar tactic, Mm -hmm. like, oh, you're having a bad feeling. Just, you know, make a gratitude list, make it all go away. Sometimes, sometimes that's not the move, you know, (laughs) that's all so many. And I have so many clients that are like, I I feeling depressed or I'm feeling sad, but I have so much to be grateful for. Mm -hmm. And what I always say is the opposite of grateful isn't like, depression or sadness, like these can all exist simultaneously. I can be grateful for my amazing husband and still be struggling with depression. I can be grateful for being in a great school and still struggle with anxiety. Like we need to understand that the two truths can exist. And while I think being grateful and reflection on gratefulness is important for grounding exercises, I think it's not going to alleviate other emotions. There's no opposite to that. That's going to, you know, get rid of sadness or anything else we're kind of going through. Yes. Oh my God. hundred percent. Yes. I love that. So I'll share a couple concrete things that have really helped me. The first one is healthy boundaries because when you're rejected at such a young age for being who you are, you learn that this other person's idea of who you should be is the most important thing. And so you really learn to betray your truth. And, and that is totally normal and natural in that environment. Of course, we learn that it's a survival mechanism, but then as we get older, that can become natural to us. We'll just, we'll do it without even thinking like a knee jerk reaction. 
So for me, I was used to a dynamic where my parents were the most important people in the house. And from that, I learned codependence because when you're compassionate towards others to the point that you're completely focused on their wants and needs and not at all, not at all focused on your own, that's not healthy compassion. That's, that's toxic. And I'll say boundaries, they can be tricky for a couple of reasons. One is that if you're not used to having them, the people in your life will often not appreciate you all of a sudden being like, yeah, actually that won't work for me. So learning to let go of people who don't respect your boundaries is a part of having boundaries. And it's, it's a painful part, right? But it's important. It's important when you're learning to make yourself the priority and get on your own team. Another tricky part of boundaries for me has been knowing when to have them. (laughs) Because for a lot of us who experience rejection from parents or caregivers, we won't have any idea when it's appropriate to have boundaries. And that's because we weren't taught how to trust ourselves. And I think probably a lot of us know that feeling, whether it's strong or super faint, when something just doesn't feel right to us, you know, maybe we don't like the way someone's treating us, but we second guess ourselves. I don't want to seem needy. I don't want to seem bitchy or demanding, whatever it is. And so we ignore that voice that tells us something's off. Correcting that rejection wound for me has been about really paying attention when that feeling comes up. And then speaking up on behalf of it and saying, I really didn't like the way you talk to me or the way you're treating me isn't going to work. Here's what I need. I'm definitely not perfect at this, at this point in my life. And sometimes it takes me a couple days to realize, oh, that thing that happened the other day really doesn't feel right. But I can still say something after the fact, and that's okay too, because what healthy boundaries do at whatever point you're able to voice them is rewire your brain to understand that you matter and what you want and need matters. And that's key to loving yourself. Another part of healing the wound of rejection around, you know, parental rejection for me is reparenting myself. When you're rejected as a child, something called internal fragmentation happens. We hear it talked about more often as your inner child. So basically during all these moments when you were rejected growing up, your child self created a belief in the moment to help make sense of what was happening. So those beliefs could be, I'm not good enough. I'm defective. I have to work hard to get love. It's not safe to be me. My safety doesn't matter whatever the belief is, unless you've intentionally worked with it, each of those beliefs is still living inside you. So one thing I love that my therapist does when she encounters me buying into one of my internal fragmentation, wounded inner child beliefs is she'll ask me, how old is that voice? If you had to assign it an age, how old would it be? And what she's essentially asking me is, How old were you when you created that belief? And once I locate an answer, not far behind that is a traumatic memory from when I was about that age. Once I have that, then I can do a visualization where I go back to that exact moment, that exact memory. And instead of playing it out as it happened, I reimagine it by inserting adult Remy into the scenario. So maybe in the memory, my dad's screaming at me when I'm eight, or maybe my mom is telling me I need to get over something when I'm 14. 
I visualize adult Remy stepping in and maybe if I want to, adult Remy yells at my parents and stands up for that child version of myself. And I'm able to release all of the anger I have. But most importantly, I go back to that memory and visualize adult Remy giving my child self what she really needed in that moment that she didn't get from her parents. I did this recently with my therapist and it was so powerful because again, when you weren't raised getting your needs met, you don't even know what language is needed in a moment like that. Like sometimes you can't even see what your wound is exactly. So my therapist was able to feed me some of the support to give. In this memory, I was four. So I, would, I was giving it to my four-year-old self. And that sounded something like, you are wanted. You were put on this earth for an important reason. You always deserve to be seen and heard. And anytime anyone tells you otherwise, you remember that you have me. I'm always with you. I'm always here. And I love you exactly the way you are. So I was visualizing, crouching down, looking into the eyes of my four-year-old self and saying those words. And what that work does is rewire the brain around that memory and give those fragmented parts of yourself, those child selves that are still inside you, the support that they didn't get growing up so that they can heal and so that you can let go of those wounded, rejected beliefs that those younger versions of yourself were holding on to. And you can start to integrate your new healthy beliefs that come from knowing that you matter. Okay, I'll stop there with, with what I know about this. Liz, how are you doing over there? I mean, wonderfully. Thank you so much for sharing all that. I think also what amazing techniques to be able to work through in real time. And I mean, I'm taking notes. I think there's such, such great things that you're saying, some of which I feel like are aligned with therapy as a whole, healing ourselves from kind of any thing in our life that we're facing is, is keeping that voice alive that we have our, our own backs. Yes. Which is really beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Well, I'm super excited to hear your take on some of this stuff. And the first question I have is, I think we all kind of know that the experiences you have in the first five years of your life are really important in creating your brain chemistry or, you know, wiring your brain in certain ways, but can you expand on that? Why, like, why is it exactly what's happening in the brain that makes these childhood rejection experiences with our caregivers so impactful and long lasting? So our brain's fastest development are the first eight years of our lives. It's also when we develop connections fastest. We're born and we are essentially helpless, right? We cannot feed ourselves. We cannot dress ourselves. None of that. So we're thirsty for knowledge, understanding, but most importantly, we're thirsty for connection. So that physical, intellectual, social, and emotional development between, you know, like you said, one and five, but one and eight even is this development that's leaving these lasting effects. It's creating a roadmap for us for the steps that we're taking. I think also just from a like purely like evolutionary standpoint, like the level of dependence at that age is so extreme. Our, our survival is in someone else's hands. And though we don't know that it may be six months, there is this innate part of us that understands we didn't have needs met or we are hungry, or we are lonely, or there are these moments between that age that 
sticks with us. And that's where fears are created or there's a loss loss or need to be connecting in, in some way. So a lot of what you talked about, about attachment, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, comes from those moments of those needs not being met. Yes. <laughs> okay. In my experience, I talked about being shut down when I was angry or depressed, being told I wasn't good enough, being ignored. What are some of the other ways that children can be rejected by their parents? Yeah. I, I mean, I think also when we're talking about parents, there's like caregivers too, right? These right. early teachers that we have or nannies or older siblings that take that that role. And I think that they can often express rejection with us as well, or they're not, you know, emotionally able to support us in a certain way. So I think that's important also when we think about parental rejection is like these other people in our life. Mm. I think when we think of rejection and we all often assume that there's like loneliness and separation, but I think for so many people, it's in smaller things, really strict rules around emotions. Like, you know, boys don't cry or don't complain. Or like what you were talking about before, that emotional assumption that you had a responsibility for your parents' emotions, right? So it's almost this sense of you can't express yourself or there's a right or a wrong way to do this or keep these emotions at bay because nobody wants to see this kind of, you know, action. And then I also think you talked about internal fragmentation. And I think that there's also this part that we have to talk about, which is core beliefs, right? So these things that exist in these lenses that we see our whole life through. So that they can be harmful because they set a standard for how we see everything. So like the way that you look or the type of relationship that you should be in, if your parents have these strict core beliefs that you grow up with, how does that affect everything you do? If there's a, you know, if you think about, you know, colored Ray-Ban glasses and your parents have red ones in a core belief, everything you're seeing is looking like that hue. And it's really hard to question something that's been, you know, part of you for so long. I also think comments about personality or unchangeable aspects about ourselves. um, not being innately supported. I think there's a lot of, you know, people that feel unsupported in sexuality, in expression of themselves, in their choices in career or in friends or any of that, that stays with us. because so we innately have this sense of, oh, I wasn't worthy for their love or they didn't approve of that. And I think also physicality outside of abuse, right? You know, naturally not having a hug or having someone choose not to sit with you somewhere or, you know, not the small things or holding your hand across the street. These things that we maybe take it like don't that we take for granted in a lot of ways are these moments of somebody showing you support. And I also think, you know, absence of warmth and affection, like I I remember, I do remember being kissed goodnight by one of my parents every night. And that is something that, no, I didn't think it was important at that time, but I didn't ever feel lonely going to sleep. And I think we underestimate the importance of that kind of warmth that's, mm. then we become normalized to wanting that and expecting that and accepting that, I think. Ooh, yeah, that's a big one is physical affection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if, and yeah, so my mom was very physically affectionate, but my dad wasn't at all. And, um, 
yeah, I remember feel like trying to kind of force affection with him a lot, which mm-hmm. would lead to rejection because he didn't, you know, he yeah. was uncomfortable with it. And so, you know, he would kind of, he just wouldn't respond a lot or he would kind of like push me away or whatever it was. Um, so yeah, I think that's, that's so important. And you're right. Sometimes we don't, I think a lot of times when people didn't grow up with physical affection, they don't realize how much they needed it. You know, hundred percent. I also think like, you don't have to be this overly affectionate, you know, hugging, kissing type of person, but there are small acts. Like I say, like crossing the street and grabbing your child's hand. This is a way of me showing you that you're safe and I care about your safety. Or when I leave you to go to school or a sleepover, I can give you a hug. It doesn't need to be, you know, in the middle of the day, I'm coming to check on you and giving you a hug. It doesn't have to be overly done to make someone feel, oh, wow, that felt good. That was a actual visual and physical sense of love and care from somebody. And I think it's, it's under, it's underestimated. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to go back to this idea of um, that you brought up around core beliefs and mm-hmm. kind of looking at the world through the lens that your parents provided. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, <sighs> this is something I'm working with and I'm not, I, I want to make sure I artic- articulate it in a way that makes sense. I think there are two prongs here going on to the thing I, I want to talk about. The one is my parents, um, like I said, their affections were inconsistent Mm -hmm. and, and it was unpredictable whether or not I was safe in the home or felt safe in the home. Mm -hmm. And So there was that, that's the one prong. The other prong was that neither of my parents, abuse had gone on in both of their households. And so both of them had this, uh, I think bitterness and disillusion about the world. And as a result of both of those things, the way that I, there was like a core belief of for both of them, I think, of the world is bad. And it manifested in different ways for both of them. But the way that I sort of internalized that core belief that they had and and those uh, red lens Mm -hmm. (laughs) Ray-Bans. It was my first first glasses that I knew I had that were colored. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, totally, yes. Yeah. I love it. Um, yeah. If you grew up in the eighties, red sunglasses, fuck yeah. Um, yeah. The way that I internalized it was not just their belief that, you know, the world is bad, but also I projected who they were Mm -hmm. onto my understanding of who God was and who the universe was. Mm. Or, or how the universe worked. So it was like, um, in my house, I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop. And then I got out of my house and in life, I was always waiting for the other shoe to drop mm-hmm. because my parents were scary. And so God was scary. Right. Or like the universe, whatever relationship it is that you have to, uh, you know, whatever's out there, <laughs> uh, for the me, world. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. For me, it was like, it was very specifically, um, God 
doesn't have my back and um, could hurt me at any moment. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah. So part of my healing from this whole, um, from, from the core beliefs that I've gained from my family of origin has been about not just re-understanding who I am, what my value is, et cetera. Mm -hmm. It's also been about re-examining my relationship to my spirituality mm-hmm. and 100%. Get, getting away from this idea that the world is out to get me. Yes. I mean, I think also what you're saying is whether or not you can look at your life and look at your childhood and think that there was rejection, our core beliefs are built so young and we use them as foundation to a house that might not that could be crooked, right? Mm-hmm. So when I'm working with clients, the things I see the most is feel feelings of being unlovable or unsafe or unfair. And it's stemming from this core belief that they themselves are unlovable because they were unloved. Mm-hmm. Or like you're saying, it was unsafe at home. So the world is unsafe and, and nobody's looking out for me. Or this feeling of un, when people, I was just talking about this the other day with someone and they're like, it's, you know, my mother was always saying, well, it's because I said so. No explanation. This is what it is. And they were like, everything was unfair and they always and now they're talking about a job and a boss and all these things they're in their 30s and they're saying it's so unfair and they don't take the control in it and I think that whether or not you can relate with the idea of rejection our core beliefs that our parents help us create define a lot for us so let's Mm -hmm. take off the glasses let's look at that how has that created an imbalance in relationships how has that created a space that's not serving me right now. Yes. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. And I think if you, if you felt rejected and you're walking around with that core wound, then that's, you're projecting that, you know, that's the lens through which you're seeing the world too, even if you don't realize it. So I think it's, that's so important check out what glasses you have on. hundred <laughs> percent. And I, you were talking about earlier about, you know, you were still having your straight A's and this perfectionism that was coming through for you. And I think unworthy is a huge core belief I see. And I think that we have created this innate sense of searching for worth. This is proof of my worth, right? Or I talk to so many women that are, when I get married, then I'll be happy. As if this person is the proof that that I am worthy, right there. I'm going to show you that. And I think so much of that comes from our parents of what did you get in class? Oh, you got that B that's proof that you're not worthy. And it's one more reason that I'm going to make you feel that way. And I think that perfectionism comes with a lot of ideas of worth because we need that gold star, that validation to prove it instead of looking inward and looking for that inward validation. And I think that, I think that I core belief idea of worthiness as well as perfectionism really align with everything you've been talking about for sure. Yeah. Ooh, I love that. Okay. My next question is really just about getting clarity on whether rejection even took place because sometimes when parental rejection is subtle or manipulative, or it's like sandwiched between moments of connection, sometimes people won't even know that they experienced it. What are some of the signs that a person suffered rejection from their parents? So, you know, non-acceptance, dismissal of your thoughts and feelings, a lack of interest. These are things that can be done really subtly. 
right? So it doesn't need to be, you know, you unfortunately experienced this major moment of, no, I don't, I don't want to watch that videotape, like you had said about your dad. But what about when mom or dad doesn't show up for the event? They were busy at work. And we all chalk it up to something else because they told you you were going to be there. Oh, something else was more important. And these small things. I also think defensive responses, right? So if you can't have open dialogue, even as a young kid, um, you know, having conversations about politics or anything in your home, nope, that's actually no, you're wrong. Just this constant defensive response. Um, I think overreaction to minor inconveniences or feeling a sense of blame, right? You're going to spill. I. I literally went to my parents today and I actually spilled coffee on their carpet and I had to call my mother and apologize. But her <laughs> response was, it happened, clean it up, we'll move on. And I think that when you have this fear of overreaction, you cannot do anything wrong. Like what you were saying, you have this memory so clear of you and your sister being absolutely silent because if you made a noise, there was this fear. So the overreaction is something that I think creates a lot of fear. Kids are going to spill. They're going to drop something. It's going to happen. How you respond to that, it's going to make them feel safe and making mistakes. Um, individual time spent together. I think that's a huge thing that people underestimate. I think that a lot of people, oh, I had family time, but it's not you know, individual with mom, individual with dad, individual with their siblings. And I think people can feel rejected when another sibling is always with dad or another sibling is always with mom, or you're only all together and you don't get that individual love and attention and affection. Um, I also think creating unobtainable expectations or expectations that like rest is a gift, not a right. And you need to always be working or you need to, just something that is creating a space where you don't feel like you can succeed. Cause I think a huge part of success, especially in childhood is the thought that we could do it. Right. Um, I also say avoidance of emotional, emotional expression and intelligence, right. Teaching children different, um, emotions. So we have our primary and our secondary emotions, right. We teach kids anger, sad, happy, but who's treating, teaching them about loneliness and jealousy and these things that are deep that kids are not going to be able to explain to you. And when a parent doesn't sit there and say, it's really hard that you're feeling that, you know, under this umbrella of sadness might come grief and loneliness and all these other things. Let's explore that. I think that is something that we also really underestimate. I think that umbrella all though is, is all based on invalidation, right? Like people that have like emotionally immature parents. Also, that's like the book I'm going to reference in a little too. It's like, they aren't able to validate the children in the way that they need. And this is going to lead to a standard of self-doubt, right? Am I allowed to feel this way? If everyone has it worse, then am I allowed to express my own needs? Uh, you know, feelings and emotions, they can be right or wrong. Like exactly like you, what you said, you were never going to express that depression if you were only going to be loved and worthy of that space, if you showed up happy or whatever. And I think also there's people that don't know how to create those emotional connections or expressions and they come off as fake because they're just inauthentic. There's so much there that hasn't been explained on how to go through it. Mm. There has. Okay. So you, so that is really interesting. I hadn't thought about people trying to fake that. I mean, I think emotional maturity is the biggest gift you can give your kid mm -hmm. and being in that space to tell them that all your feelings, they're coming from somewhere. 
I don't have to agree with you. I don't have to be sharing that with you. Tell me what you're feeling. Place it here. Let's talk about it. You know, you're allowed to feel any way you want. You can express this. You are worthy of this. Don't doubt yourself. Like we're innately emotional people and beings. So if that gets questioned, then how can we feel like we're right about anything? Mm. Yes. Ugh. And that, uh, that resonates so deeply for me because, um, self-doubt was really such a defining factor of how I was showing up for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And, um, when I think back on experiences, like my mom talking to that newer mom and saying, Oh, Oh yeah. If your child is crying, you don't have to put up with that put it, put that child in her bedroom and close the door. Um, yeah, the, the massive gap between that and you have the right to feel everything you're feeling Mm -hmm. and let's talk about what's coming up for you. And Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, maybe you're sad, but is it because you're feeling jealous? You know, is Mm -hmm. it because of, like you said, these secondary emotions, Mm -hmm. you're absolutely right. We are, and I think this is, I, I'm so excited to hear you say this because this just like was not a part of my upbringing. And I wish someone had said this to me at the time, but we are naturally emotional. And 100%. it's like, it's like, if you, if every time your child has to poop, you're like, don't poop, <laughs> you know, what are they going to, it's going to be, everyone's going to get really sick. But I think if you think about, you know, I, those cards, the like black and white cards that you buy someone when they have a baby and they're like, you know, those like graphics, they're like happy, sad, like smiley, whatever. We teach them these things. And then we tell them not to feel it. Mm. We're it's okay. If you see someone crying, they're sad, but don't do it. Mm, but you don't that, get to do it. Because people don't, don't want that. And okay. I think what you talk about, about self-doubt is this natural invalidation. Am I allowed to feel this way? you know, and I think then we end up searching for validation in the wrong ways. We're with a partner and we're like, can you validate me? Or with our friends, can you validate me? And it's, where is it innately if somebody hasn't built this foundation to help us figure out how to get it? Mm, My God, that really, that really hits home. Okay. I want to revisit the attachment styles because, you know, I have anxious attachment style and I can talk a lot about that and about what it looks like, but I don't want to leave out our avoidant folks. So can you talk about becoming there from what I understand, there's secure attachment, anxious attachment, fearful, avoidant, and then dismissive avoidant. Um, can you talk about becoming avoidant as a result of feeling rejected by caregivers? Like what, what does that look like? What are some of their core beliefs? What kind of behavioral patterns do we see in fearful and dismissive avoidant attachment folks? Absolutely. So, you know, Secure attachment goes on one side and then you have an umbrella that has insecure attachment. And under that, we have, like you said, avoidant, anxious, and then some people call it disorganized or that's fearful avoidance. And I think that um, there's been a lot of different studies that have named different versions of it, but the way to look at it that I do in two, two ways is anxious is this fear of abandonment while avoidant is this fear of intimacy. Mm-hmm. And then disorganized is this mixture of both, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that, you know, when you are um, somebody who is avoiding commitment in relationships, that's platonic, familial, romantic, even in the workspace, keeping people at arm's length, 
um, the lack of closeness is going to appear maybe as elevated, like anxious thoughts and feelings, but this person is not going to express them to you, right? Um, inwardly, they'll likely have negative inner dialogue or thoughts of themselves that maybe they aren't worthy um, of the close bonds that we like as humans can naturally yearn for. I also think um, avoidant is a lot of difficulty in regulating emotions. High emotional IQ is unlikely in that space um, because it's really hard to trust others and have them support you. I think in romantic relationships, great examples are struggling to know how your emotional needs are met. And when somebody tries to do that or you explain them how it's immediately overwhelming. Nope. Okay. It's too much. Um, or you're going to be searching for signs for your partners, like to be frustrated or annoyed, um, and then miss them and then see them for the first time and immediately start a fight, right? These kind of high lows. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Like that kind of, Oh, I missed you, but now you're close. And I, I, I'm regretting that almost. Um, and I think also just like they are not going to be comfortable with the vulnerability that somebody in an anxious or secure attachment may need, right? Mm -hmm. So they're going to be staying surface level with you. I mean, I think we've all maybe gone on a couple dates with someone and been like, wow, I've spilled my whole guts out to them. And I know like the color of their car, right? Like you're feeling like there's a, there's a disconnect here. Um, And I think, you know, secure attachment is really like, the capacity for that healthy relationship, but that doesn't mean insecure attachments don't have the ability, right? It's just maybe going to be difficult or different or having to create a different type of bond. Um, And I think with avoidant too, it's like there's this really easy feeling of being suffocated while the anxious attachment is in this need of validation. So the mixture of the two can be a dangerous place. Um, did you, and a little bit about disorganized too, is just not to leave that out really with fearful avoidance is this kind of combination of desperately craving attention that they're avoiding at all costs, which sounds, you know, strange, but it's a rare thing that we see that people, you know, maybe they've struggled with abuse or violence or overall difficulty regulating their emotions. And they want it so desperately to be connected and they don't want to be left. But that intimacy is one, really scary, B, something that's very new to them and overall uncomfortable. And I think, you know, attachment theory in itself is looking at early bonds of a caregiver. So again, we're born, no ability to care for ourselves. So the more stable, comforting and consistent those people are, more likely we are to establish that clear lens that we've kind of talked about before. Right. Okay. That is really helpful. And I knew, you know, there is this dynamic between um, anxious and avoidant folks getting Mm -hmm. involved with each other because they trigger each other. (laughs) Yes. Um, Yeah. And I've experienced that myself multiple times and I, you know, it becomes really easy to, for me as an anxious person, um, where I need a lot of intimacy, I need a lot of vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Um, it becomes really easy to condemn avoidant folks, especially mm-hmm. when I'm dating, because I'm like, fuck you, you're <laughs> emotionally unavailable and you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I also think it's important to remember, just like you mentioned, these are all things that start 
in childhood and whatever, if you're not coming from secure attachment, whatever place you're coming from is because you weren't given what you needed as a child. And, and, you know, those caregivers who couldn't give you what you needed also probably weren't given what they needed and on and on. Definitely a cycle. Yeah. Yeah. This is a domino thing. Um, so it is helpful, I think, to remember, especially when dating and encountering for me, encountering uh, avoidant folks and maybe for avoidant folks, encountering anxious folks, we've been traumatized Yeah, and, and yeah, to have compassion for that. Yeah. Go ahead. There's also, it's, you know, there's no doom in emotion, right? Like the same way you're talking about working towards this better understanding and reparenting yourself, like these, I like to think of emotional capacity as a muscle. When you go to the gym and you work out the first type couple of times, that's going to hurt. You're going to feel it, mm-hmm. but that is going to become stronger, right? So if you are in a relationship with someone and you can tell that your attachment styles are maybe not aligning, how do you work with each other's emotional capacity to make somebody comfortable? I know I'm a big talker. My husband's not. I know when he needs a minute and he's able to tell me that vice versa. And I think if communication is open and both people are open and willing to hear what the other person needs emotionally, any type of attachment style can blend together. I do Mm. think that. Mm. Cool. That's good to know. (laughs) Hope there's hope. (laughs) Always. (laughs) Okay. One thing I think is common among anyone who experienced parental rejection is coming into adulthood, not knowing who you really are because under one mask or another, whether it's pretending you're happy, which was my thing, pretending you don't want connection, which I think is like an avoidant thing, pretending you're straight or cisgendered, pretending you're not scared, whatever, you probably had to hide at least some part of yourself. So what does it look like to start to integrate those shunned or rejected parts of ourselves as adults? I love that question. I think the first thing is exploration what have we lost? What have we left behind? What have we left behind for others? Also, I think this is really common after a breakup too, is Mm -hmm. to forget the person that we were before. What were we doing? How are we feeling fulfilled before this relationship? And, and I think exploring something, whether it's emotional or logistical, like for example, if your family grew up, this is a very benign example, but if your family grew up and they didn't allow fish in the house, they didn't like the smell, they couldn't eat it okay, let me explore this. This was something I didn't experience. This was something that I want to experience. I want to go to sushi with my friends. And I was never comfortable doing it because I couldn't have fish in my house. So you have to explore that and know what that is. You know, hiking without markers is getting lost on a mountain. Figure out what you're looking for and start trying to find them. I think that's important. I think revisiting core beliefs is huge. You know, we've utilized these things as facts for so long. I have to be perfect to be loved. Oh, nope. It's actually not true. What have I been pushing for in perfectionism that has left out an inability for me to take off that mask or that piece of armor? Um, I think a huge part is increasing our own willingness to be vulnerable and engage in connection. Whatever type of attachment that you have, creating secure, vulnerable, and emotional attachment with somebody is going to take work. How can we do this from a place that's very authentic? 
Um, I also think creating values that separate us from our family and our parents. Mm -hmm. Uh, I would also say, regardless, whether you have the most loving, cared for, non-rejecting parents in your life, you've been raised a certain way, thinking certain things were right. Like, and I think that, you know, I always talk about another benign example is like, does peanut butter go in the fridge or not? You know, this is a big debate. If you ask a group of people, you have people whose parents did or didn't, and that is going to trickle down. They're going to put it in the fridge or they're not. And I think that that is something where we can create values of saying, you know what? I actually like my peanut butter cold. I grew up with it in the drawer. I'm putting it in the fridge now. Mm. Um, and I think we also have to raise expectations of others. Um, and when we start to feel like we're enough, and like you talked about redefining those boundaries, other people might get uncomfortable. Oh, I'm no longer accepting that sense of unworthiness. I'm, I've decided I'm putting that peanut butter in the fridge now because that's what I want, et cetera, et cetera. Raise those expectations. People will either meet you or they won't, and you are going to be in a new space. And most important, all else fails without this, is personal acceptance, right? Like, you know, you move away from your parents or you start this kind of adult life and you think, if you really like yourself, you can really start to move away from some of those masks that you had on and authenticity and acceptance, I think are majorly aligned. Mm. Oh, I love it. I love that. And I wanted to say around this topic of exploration and raising expectations, I think it's probably pretty clear that I, I didn't grow up in a home where I could say to someone, Hey, this hurt my feelings and how, and, and there'd be some kind of conversation around mm -hmm. it, that that would be respected, that that would, that anyone would actually be interested in that really. Mm -hmm. And as I have gotten older and explored platonic relationships with girlfriends, I have been more intentional around being able to say, Hey, this hurt my feelings and really noticing what it's like when a girlfriend of mine says, oh, thank you for telling me that. I, I didn't mean to. And can, can you mm -hmm. tell me more about that? And, and just seeing how different that is for me. And also realizing there are people that you will say that to who will treat you the same way that maybe your parents or caregivers did, which is like to dismiss it, to belittle it, whatever. And to notice, like, how many of those people do you have in your life versus how many people do you have where you can say, um, a, a great example is I have a really close friend who isn't as uh, physical as I am. She doesn't need physical touch in the way that I do. And I've had my, my feelings have gotten hurt because I'll be in a situation where I'm upset or something and it's not her knee-jerk reaction, her immediate response to hug me or hold my hand or put her arm around me or whatever it is. And I, at first didn't say, I, I didn't say anything to her about it for a really long time because I didn't think I could, but mm -hmm. as I have explored more and I've raised expectations more around, like, it's okay for me to ask for what I need. She could also tell me I'm not comfortable with that, but it's okay for me to ask. And mm -hmm. I've found that when I ask her, she's really responsive. And that has been something that has brought us closer together because she's like, oh, I didn't know that you needed that. And, mm -hmm. and she'll tell me, 
I really respond well when people tell me what they need, which is really hard for me because yeah, yeah, I wasn't raised in that household. Yeah, go ahead. I think that goes with like, you know, having boundaries not be represented as criticism. Mm. And, you know, I think that boundaries are this expression of our own needs and limits and being like, I have a boundary, you know, if I am vulnerable and emotional and honest with you, I need you to respond in a certain way for me to feel safe. Right. right? And having someone be able to hear that they could say, I love you. I'm going to touch your hand because I'm not going to hug you. Okay. That's great. Let's come to some collaboration where I feel seen and heard and you feel respected. But I think that exactly like what you're saying, you know, that has to come with the raising of expectations of others along with that acceptance of what you need too. Right. Yeah. And, and when you aren't raised to value what you need, it, it can take some time to understand a, that you get to have a need and B that you get to ask for it. (laughs) So just, just like a reminder to people, if that's hard, that's okay. You know? Absolutely. My, probably my favorite book personally and professionally is Nancy Levin's setting boundaries will set you free. Mm -hmm. And it is so much about a discussion of like the people that don't respect your boundaries. Let's ask ourselves the role they're playing in our life. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it's such an important thing to do, especially during that exploration phase of what you've left behind and that same theme, like what masks are you holding on to for other people? Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not your parents anymore. But did you hold on to one of those and you see yourself slipping it on when you're around this person and they're triggering that inside of you? You know, that's a huge thing because I think we we often create that dynamic where we look for people similar to people that have hurt us before. Mm, totally. Yeah. And speaking of boundaries, um, that was one of the things that I talked about that was helpful for me in my healing process and also reparenting visualizations, but what are some other key techniques or practices to help us recover when we're carrying this rejection wound from our parents? So, you know, back to this idea of acceptance and awareness, right? By denying ourselves of the clarity that there are truths about our parents or caregivers that we wish we're not there, we're avoiding recognizing these traits in other people, right? So if we say, no, that was fine, that she never hugged me, we are so often accepting this behavior in someone else too. It was okay that she said I wasn't allowed to be emotional. And then we find ourselves dating someone that's doing the same thing, right? Because we've accepted this trait from somebody else. I also think there, it is so powerful to disengage. Um, I mean, I'm assuming that a lot of your audience is an adult age where they can disengage with certain behavior. That doesn't mean we're leaving mom and dad and we're not talking to them and we're not having relationships with them, but we're placing the energy where we're gaining it back, right? If we fill our lives with takers, we're going to be left with nothing disengaging doesn't mean I'm not friends with you anymore, but I might not go out with you during the week when I need to put my energy somewhere else. I'm going to disengage from that space. I don't know if you're a Real Housewives watcher, but that's a big Meredith Marks comment of disengaging (laughs) in something. Um, No, I haven't watched that show really, but um, is there like a funny line about it? She always says I'm disengaging when she's like, when the drama unfolds. And I kind of like, you're kind of on the show for this, but I I love it. But I also... (laughs) I think, you know, children, we innately don't have autonomy. We don't create boundaries. So what makes you your parent's child still? 
redefine that role, right? My parents do not feed me. My parents do not house me anymore. So those rules of my inability to disengage with behavior, they're not there anymore. So I think we, like, I loved what you said. What age is that voice? So that rule that you created that you could never say no to mom, how old was that girl? You know, Mm -hmm. Um, I also think redefining the roles that fit in your life, right? So if mom calls you every single night at 10 PM, and then you end up going to sleep in a bad mood, it's scheduling the call for earlier, turning your phone on, do not disturb, right? Redefining what this looks like understanding that you're the only one in control of boundary setting, you know, look for change within yourself, other people, I would come from a space of assumption that they're not going to change for you. Um, And grow and lean out from other people's mistakes, right? You know, I think it's important that there's a level of acceptance and behavior that we say that we're not going to be a part of. It happened to us that we're not going to create that pattern. And then with boundaries too, I think, you know, when we think about boundaries, I think a lot of people think about physical boundaries, but energetic boundaries, which is like not taking on someone else's energy or letting something else bother you or emotional boundaries of what you're going to talk about with somebody or anything like that. Like these are imperative for us to live like a life where we feel like we're in control. Mm, Yeah. And I think it does all kind of come back to control because it's about we can't control the past. We can't control mm-hmm. our childhoods. So that's done, but we can control how we work with it now and putting that power back, back on our side, reclaiming mm-hmm. that power, empowering ourselves. Mm-hmm. All that's all part of this healing process because essentially exactly like you keep saying, we didn't have autonomy at this time. Mm-hmm when, when all of this happened. And so Mm -hmm. learning to take back our power, I think is such a big part of this healing process. So yeah, I love that. This has been so helpful. Thank you so much, Liz. And also you mentioned you wanted to name some books that were particularly helpful on this topic. So first one that I just mentioned, setting boundaries will set you free. Nancy Levin, you can see uh, I have literal post-its, hugely important, I think. Then there's two books by Lindsay Gibson about emotionally immature parents. One is about recovering um, and one is just the overall theme. And I think it's hugely important for anybody that's doing work to establish boundaries. And there's a lot of conversations about you know, distant rejection, these things that we've experienced and how we can move away from them. And then just in the idea of attachment, I think that the book Attached um, by Levine and Heller has been a great way to make something that seems really clinical, very obtainable, as well as, um, you know, towards the end, some of my favorite things are these kind of working things out workshops about something like conflict strategies. Um, And I think it's a really good, thing to have if you want to explore your own attachment style or you're with a partner that you want to explore with. I think it's a really powerful thing to do together. Ooh, awesome. Yes. I love a workbook. (laughs) What's better than that, right? Yeah. I love a conflict resolution workbook. Awesome. Yay. Thank you so much for sharing those. And if people want to connect with you, is there a way that they can find you on the, on the internets? Yeah, so they can head to Manhattan Wellness. Uh, That's the practice that I'm at. And you can reach out to Manhattan Wellness over Instagram or on their website. And um, yeah, it's a great practice. I'm really proud to be there. And all the therapists are wonderful. And um, 
yeah, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Oh my God. Thank you so much for coming on, Liz. It's been such a great conversation. And if any of y'all want to get a hold of me, you can email me at patramaparty at gmail.com or find me on Insta. I'm at Remy's R E M E E Z. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye.